uh, it's good to have uh, some of the teams with us this morning. It's good, good to have you join us. Let's pray now as we come to this part of God's word. Our Father, we thank you that as our Father, you allow us to hear your voice and you want us to hear your voice, a voice that's kind and gracious and good for us. A voice that sometimes says hard things, but things that are ultimately for our good. And so we pray that we trust you enough this morning to listen well and to be those who go changed from what we hear. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1990, at the end of the Soviet Union's tight control of Mongolia, missionaries with Bibles arrived into the country. And by 1995, there were 2,000 believers. By 2001, there were 10,000 believers. By 2004, there were 30 to 40,000 believers, which is about when we arrived. It was an exciting time for us to live there, in some ways resembling the book of Acts, um, playing out right before our eyes. Many of the first-generation missionaries were um, handing over to second-generation missionaries and also to mature Mongolian believers who developed in that time. There were many lives being turned around, sometimes gradually, sometimes really dramatically. A drunk and and sexually immoral Buddhist monk in a town I remember hearing about came to Christ and started radiating a new and living message to the same town that previously knew him as that monk and now see him as this Jesus man. Uh, The churches prayed big prayers, heartfelt prayers for God's salvation, uh, that it would spread to unreached parts of the country, into new spiritual um, dark areas, into their parliament and into universities, into neighbouring closed countries. It was like Acts 19 that we just uh, read some of, where Paul's gospel is causing a stir and turning lives and whole cities upside down. Um, The governors are worried about rioting and and the problem that might cause from the Roman authorities. But it was also like the Corinthian church with its problems. And so you had stories of the country pastor who sleeps with one of his youthful apprentices. Or he organises for the offertory just to come straight to him and and he'll take care of it. Or the immature, immature city pastor corrupted by foreign church funds to purchase his new house and four wheel drive. The elders adoption of dictatorial communist leadership styles by default rather than the model Christ would actually have them use. So what model did Christ, the head of the church, intend for his international church, as we've seen it in the book of Acts, international lies? How could church, how should church leaders look? And in this chapter, Paul gives here a a leadership masterclass. When I was learning to fly aeroplanes, the instructor taught me very early on, with two of us in the cockpit, it's really important that both of us are crystal clear about who's actually responsible at any time for flying the plane. And so the protocol was, uh, the captain would normally say handing over, and then the other, that, that would be me, the student would say taking over. He knows and I know who's flying the plane. Well, having, having been a dominant voice in the Ephesian church, Paul makes it clear to the elders that the humans responsible for the church in Ephesus were the elders standing in front of him. And he's saying, handing over. And as Paul hands over, he says, remember my example. And he'll also tell them some things to do. 
So we'll see description followed by prescription. Firstly, how should Christian leaders look? We see Paul's model of humility, tears, testings, and his teaching. Without a hint of boasting, Paul points to the Spirit's work in him as an example for others. His humility, his tears, his testing. And as we enter, you might ask, well, what, what Paul, what's Paul's life got to do with leadership? Uh, why does he speak so much of his life? Um, I don't know if you've heard of this principle, but the three C's principle in Christian ministry is a, is a valuable one, where we have conviction and character and competence in that order. So what people believe about Jesus and the gospel will, will make them fitting or otherwise for, for Christian leadership. But what their character as well is like, and if that fits with what they believe. And then thirdly, after that comes competence and skills and gifting, so that the person who might just shine isn't necessarily the best leader. leader. Well, plenty of convictions and character are coming out of Paul's description of the way he sought to live. And he gives only four verses telling the elders what to do later on, but 13 verses telling them how he went about doing what he does. And so he reveals so much of his convictions and his character for those who are very aware also of his competence. So Acts 20, verse 17, we read, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, he'd been there over two and a half years teaching them. They, they, They knew each other well. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So a a powerful, high-profile church planter? Yes, he was, and a humble one at that. My friend was a pastor, and he, he gently and very reluctantly confronted his senior minister about the way the senior minister was bullying other people in the congregation. And after praying a lot about it and wrestling about it and talking with his wife about it, he decided he needed to say something when he saw, saw the minister explode again in front of someone else. He confronted the minister. The minister then froze him, shut him out. He stopped receiving emails from the team in the church and he knew that his time in the church was over. He'd just be moved on. And so he was. Paul served the Lord with, with great authority but also with a level of humility and it's a beautiful trait. So often when I see a potential conflict... You just see humility diluted. And you think, oh, I'm so pleased, Holy Spirit, that you've, you've brought humility into this group of people. Paul served the Lord with humility. And what's going on with the tears? You, might, you may have noticed in the reading there were tears in verse 19, tears again in verse 31, and then much weeping in verse 37. Are these tears of joy? Are they tears that come through walking with people through persecution? Well, perhaps these things and more, but tears tend to flow when people carely, uh, care deeply for each other. Paul obviously loved people, and people obviously loved Paul back. In Romans 16, he mentions about 30-something names and he'd never been to Rome, men and women and, and, and co-workers and, and fellow servants of Christ. But if you turn to the end of this chapter, verse 36, you can see where the affection for Paul is striking. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. 
They'd seen what persecution looks like and they know what's coming. And then they accompanied him to the ship. DPC, if there are some tears in our church community, we're probably on a good relational track. More than friendly, friends. And I noticed last week some of our eyes welled up at the baptism giving thanks for little Luke and the way Nick shared of some of the struggle in their life and the joy he was to them and to us. I've had tears in my eyes in recent weeks meeting with people hearing some of you pray. Um, I met with a family this week ahead of a funeral that happened on Wednesday and was moved by their situation. Jesus and his people reach our hearts. Now, maybe I'm soft. Uh, Maybe many of us are. And maybe that's exactly the way the Spirit leads us to be. I mean, Toy Story gets me going, I should admit. Uh, You've got a friend in me, that just chokes me up. It didn't used to choke me out. I don't know. I guess I'm getting softer. Maybe that's aging as well. But I take it it's the Spirit's work that just gives me a a concern for people. Soft hearts moved and affected by each other's lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so tears often flow between friends. And so we've seen humility, tears. What about Paul's severe testing he mentions in verse 19? He's not just referring to a rough article in the Sydney Morning Herald or some nasty Facebook comments. So far in Acts, Paul has been beaten and pelted with large stones so badly they thought he was dead and the job was finished. He was flogged, he's been chained in dirty prisons with his open wounds. Paul doesn't know how much longer he's got left. If this is 52, 53 AD, Paul has about 12 years until his execution. And so this isn't um, unrealistic concern that he has, or that others have for him. But all of this to say, Christian leaders, you might be emboldened when you realise that fear and temptation to pull back a bit in in your vocation as being salt and light in the world, well, the temptation was far greater for Paul, I take it, than it will be for most of us. And so I wonder what it would be like for some of us to turn up the dial on our individual and our corporate boldness And should we suffer for it, well, we just join the likes of Jesus and Paul before us. Yes, Paul was a great and forceful preacher and church planter. He was bold for Christ, but oh, how he also suffered. This is written to inspire the same spirit in us. Humility, tears, testings. But Paul also points to his teaching. You'd think from reading chapter 19 that more amazing miracles and spiritual power encounters or perhaps some church planning strategies might be mentioned by Paul as the way for the church really to to focus on what to do next. But from verse 20, notice the flood of word-related verbs. Paul preached and taught, verse 21. He declared, verse 22. He testified, verse 24. He proclaimed, verse 27. And what's his message? Well, whatever was helpful for the church, even if uncomfortable, verse 20. So he's had two and a half years of it with them, many things. He taught them of the importance of turning to God in repentance and having faith in our Lord Jesus, verse 21. He told them all about the good news of God's grace, I take it centrally, verse 24. But with two and a half years, the whole will of God, he had time to seek to explain all kinds of things 
that come through in Scripture. Um, he didn't get obsessed, it seems, with... Well, this is pre-denominational, isn't it? But denominationalism, he didn't put the gospel aside to focus only on social justice or political agendas, but God's words centering on the gospel of grace. Paul's gospel of grace brought appreciative tears from some, and that same gospel of grace brought stones and floggings from others. Paul explains how this happens in in Corinthians. He says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. One message, but two extreme reactions. And so to proud hearts, the call to repent is repulsive, it's offensive. Sinfulness knows very well how to defend itself. But for hearts humbled through your prayers and the Spirit's softening work, your boldness with the gospel gives them the key and they realise they need Jesus the word on your lips. Now, some of you might rightly say, well, this is all right in church and in theory. But David, in my world, this isn't easy. I wrestle with how to be bold in different circumstances. Um, I personally have some different, I, I feel like I have great license, but I also have different circumstances I wrestle with. So in church, I feel I can be very direct. Uh, meat and veg for the people ready to hear God's word. A wholesome meal, I hope. At a funeral last week, I worked harder to be persuasive in directness, combining small serves of directness with more palatable goodwill in an an attempt to be winsome and to respect the occasion to which I'd been invited. Some of you work in schools, some in hospitals, where boldness will look different again taking opportunities, but not being opportunistic against the wills of a trapped audience in a school or in a hospital bed. We might need to listen for a few hours to a friend or to have meals and some fun with them before they genuinely welcome your five minutes of boldness. The question we pray and wrestle over is to how to be wise and how to be bold in our situation. That's a great prayer to have and to keep wrestling with. So we've seen humility, tears, testing, and bold teaching. And now Paul opens his heart to show what is driving him in all of this. These are such inspiring verses, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. And you know what Jerusalem means for the prophets and for Jesus before him? Not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Notice the same Holy Spirit who is saying, go that way, Paul, in verse 22, warns Paul of what is ahead of him there in verse 23. I take it the Spirit here is giving Paul the dignity of knowing what is ahead as part of him choosing to go there. Like a parent explaining to her child the pain following a necessary operation. Verse 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. 
My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My life worth nothing to me? He's not saying his life is rubbish. He's saying his life is not his own. Nothing to me. My life is best used when used in service of my king. I know my life's work and I'm resolved to do it. And so my preferences and my wishes really take second place to that. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And didn't Paul love God's grace? Didn't Paul need it? Didn't God give Paul a lovely way to make sure he never forgot grace, saving him from from his anger and his violence and his hatred and his killing? And right in that circumstance, bringing the grace of the Lord Jesus right into his heart and his life. God's grace, as one scholar puts it, was for Paul a perpetual dynamo of motivation and energy. God's grace was for Paul a perpetual dynamo of motivation and energy. Now, we all have that same grace shown to us. But the difference between Paul and us might be how little Paul forgot it, how much God helped him to remember it. The good news of God's grace. I wonder if you know people who are really driven by God's grace and they do extraordinary things. I think I see that all around our church all the time. But sometimes you see something extraordinary. 20 years ago, I heard of missionaries going to contaminated towns around Chernobyl to share the gospel. And these were missionary teams going to these places. Why on earth would they do that? Well, they were going because they had no access to the gospel there. Was it risky? It was very risky. They got sick. Were there a hundred reasons not to go? Probably more. Did they go? Yes, they did. Shocking? Yes, it is. But so were Paul's choices for those looking on. You don't have to go to Jerusalem, Paul. You don't have to finish this race in this way. But the spirit dwelling in Paul is the spirit dwelling in us who can overwhelm our strong instincts even for survival. The Spirit can overwhelm our insistence upon comfort and accumulation or a slavish concern for what other people think. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to... I wonder how you finish that sentence. Paul was given his vocation directly by Jesus. He was the apostle to the Gentiles and lived accordingly. I wonder if you have a sense of your vocation your calling. It's a word we get a bit nervous about in evangelical Sydney circles. Do we have a calling? But one I think we need to think about and we benefit from. How might God use you if you were to imagine your most fruitful self in one year, five years, ten years? I don't mind if you don't call it a calling. Call it a good direction that you're going to move in coming from the Spirit of God who's put those desires in you. Now, we don't know what tomorrow brings. 
But I think more reflection on our lives as a vocation for Christ would be a good thing for most of us. Why? So that we don't just let circumstances grab us, see something, buy it, want something, get it, be invited to do this new thing, do it. A bit like kids in a lolly shop, just the next thing just grabs our attention. Or a boat without a rudder. We've got the motor going, but we're just not sure where we're going, as a Christian even. Paul describes also not wanting to run aimlessly. What are your life values and how has God wired you to love him and best serve his people with your short life and the limited time and opportunities he's given you? What will guide you to take particular forks in the road and not other forks in the road? Now, I'm not suggesting we all try to work out exactly what God is telling us to do today. I'm suggesting what kind of servant we would want to become. A vision for ourselves that is consciously, uncompromisingly Christ's. Uh, In the front of my journal, I need a lot of help with this and I need to help myself with this. So in the front of my journal, which is, this goes back to early last year, I just write the kind of person and kind of vocation I want to have. So first point is God. My life, I want it to all be all about God. So I've got God himself, his grace, Christ risen and Christ crucified, the gospel, the spirit and spiritual disciplines in order to be more godly and thankful and humble, to worship him and love him, to have his peace and joy. Over a thousand tongues. That's the kind of life I want to live, an overflowing life. A loving man, honouring, faithful, fully Christ's. Next heading is family. That my family be appreciated and lovingly led. That Christ's light be in us as a family. That my wife Ashley is cherished. That my riches are in God and in his given gifts. That life is much more about gift than what I would gain, and therefore gratitude is central. My next heading is pastor, a pastor of word and prayer and discipling and training. I've got a quote here that says, if God calls you to be a pastor, don't stoop to be a king. And so to see my vocation as a blessing, a privilege, a duty, a treat, to love and know and feed and lead sheep, be ambitious for Christ, dependent, humble, enthusiastic, realistic, optimistic, hospitable, word-directing, disciple-making, and to put the the work of the vine ahead of the trellis. And then there's a few other points, but I'll stop there. Do you have a sense of, of what your life could be and the direction you want to take, and therefore the priorities that will come out of that? And so we go from Paul's model to, secondly, the shorter section giving Paul's instruction to be vigilant under shepherds of Christ's precious flock. Let's see Paul's instruction from verse 28. Uh, what are the elders to do and why that's important? First notice, before or while looking out for others, elders, he says, are to keep watch over yourselves. Now, I think this applies to elders, pastors, leaders. How's your walk going? How's your thinking? Are you wrestling with and resisting sin? Or are you giving some little hidden place to it? One student minister I knew had a fascination with obscure theories about God and the Bible. 
And instead of exulting in the gospel with his home group, he'd often play devil's advocate in the group and say, yes, but what about this? And, and confuse those around him with the latest thing he'd been reading. Part of my job in that college was to find rough edges and talk to students about them. Another just had this anger with God. He was resentful towards God all the time. Another created awkwardness through his sub-Christian language and humor. Uh, since others will take their cues from elders and leaders, they're urged to watch themselves first, to be the effective self-assessor, a self-auditor, that we be our own best whistleblower. We might then spare the need for God or others to step in on us, or worse, for us to do harm if left unchecked. This makes one more ready to shepherd others, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Being an elder, a Christian leader, is about shepherding. The image is rich there, isn't it? There's sheep, there's flock, there's a shepherd. Loving, and it's going to be wolves in a moment, but they're loving, they're caring about, they're caring for those we might call Christ's expensive people, those bought with Christ's precious blood. And so I'd encourage ministry leaders who are here, you might start planning meetings or have planning meetings and start them with lists of people and pray over those people on your list. How is each teenager going in my youth group? How is each home group member going in my group? Who hasn't been for a while? How can we encourage each person towards the next stage of maturity in their lives? Let your ministry flow out of prayer. That's often where I have good ideas for people. I pray for someone and then an idea comes to encourage them or contact them or thank them. And I don't know about you, but all of this makes me feel very inadequate because I don't do this very well at all. And so we pray, and God already knows we need him. And verse 32 points us again to the word of God's grace. Who is worthy to look after Christ's flock? The word of God's grace leads us in this direction. Shepherds also, verse 29, have a guard's duty. And he says what we're to be guarded from. In his context, it was this. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. You can read about them in 1 John or 2 Peter as well, talks about these kinds of teachers. Even from your own number, by the way, I think we're a bit safer now with denominations and you know what you're getting a bit more. Back then there was a lot of flux, it was all blending together. But even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Well, there's the cause for some of Paul's tears, warning sheep of the danger wolves pose. And so without vigilance, our denominations, our congregations, our colleges and our boards of Christian organizations will slip. And slippage is always in a downwards direction. I remember interviewing some school principals for a, a Christian school as part of a panel. All of them had excellent qualifications, good experience, enthusiasm for education. But my role, one of my roles on that um, 
panel was to try to find out where people stood with the gospel. Uh, I started asking fairly um, general questions and I got more and more specific. In the end, I'm bowling underarm, trying to get them to say something about Jesus or the gospel. These potential principles could have gone on to determine if and how tens of thousands of children are going to hear the message of Jesus. So easy just to slip. And so too at church. Elders approve all the roles, the teaching roles around the church because it matters. Never with a heavy hand, but also always carefully. And I think we're incredibly blessed at DPC with our elders, with our congregation leaders, our home group leaders, our ministry leaders. We're rich. And so it may be we encourage them deliberately and pray that God would keep them so that the truth is well guarded and proclaimed here at DPC for decades to come. That we would avoid shrinking back with good news that both offends but also saves. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that we are here today because... You've shepherded us in the past, and you've shepherded our shepherds. Lord, you provided for us people who would explain your word to us. You've provided people who love us and care for us and take time with us. We thank you for each other as well, that we have that ministry one to another. Father, we do commit our way to you as a church, as a denomination, We pray for the many denominations around Australia that are struggling for orthodoxy, for a clear understanding of the gospel. We pray for our Anglican brothers and sisters who are trying to defend the truth on really fundamental things at the moment. And Father, we pray that here at DPC you would help us to be uh, really deliberate about holding on to the truth, to be humble before each other and ready to be corrected. Uh, Father, that we'd have a deep love for each other, that there would be tears among us and a deep sharing of lives in the wonder and the grace of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.